turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Now, you could see right off the bat how ridiculous this artificial classification of oaths really was, but it did serve their purpose. And their purpose was to come up with the system that allowed them to avoid telling the truth. That was their goal, and they accomplished it. They just invented a very legalistic, quite frankly, superstitious system of oaths that one was obliged to keep. And they created a rather impressive list of oath-taking formulas that can be used when telling the truth was optional pretty amazing that the rabbis thought they had to tell the truth for some oaths, but for others, they could tell any kind of lie they wanted to, and God would be okay with that. One church father said something to the effect that lying is indeed an accursed vice. We have relations with one another only by words. If we recognized the horror and gravity of an untruth, we would more justifiably punish it with fire than any other crime. But we'll hear much more about honesty, oaths, and lying today on Verse by Verse as Pastor Steve Kreloff continues his message from the Sermon on the Mount. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. There used to be an old joke that not all fairy tales begin with once upon a time. Most start with, if elected, I promise. But these days, it's hard to believe anyone. In our last class, Pastor Steve pointed out that we are witnessing an increasing indifference to truth-telling in all areas of life. So let's see what Jesus thinks about all this. Open your Bible, if you can, to Matthew chapter 5. Here's Pastor Steve. And so this morning, we want to explore the area of lying by studying what Jesus had to say about oaths, because that's really the issue here. And our Lord's approach to the subject of swearing or oath-taking is the same as his approach to all the other laws. In order to teach us the biblical truth about oaths, Jesus first exposes the error of the Pharisees, and then, secondly, he tells us what he has to say about oaths, because what he has to say is consistent with God's standards of morality that have, have already been revealed in the Old Testament. And so let's begin where the Lord begins, by, by exposing the error of the Pharisees. You'll see how subtle how manipulative, how, how absolutely hypocritical they were. We begin in verse 33. Jesus said, Again you have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. Jesus begins to unfold the Old Testament view about oaths by first stating what the ancient rabbis, as well as the scribes and Pharisees of his day, taught on this subject. And what they taught is summed up in verse 33. It's really a summation. You shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. In other words, don't break your oath, but keep the oaths that you've made to the Lord. That's, that's what they said. Now, quite frankly, what the Pharisees said about oaths, as Jesus is summing it up, was not wrong. They, they, there was really nothing in and of this statement that's wrong. It's, it's not a, a direct quote from the law, but it's really a, a summation 
of a number of laws. It's not a distortion of the law either, not, not taking it at face value. It's a summary statement of several Old Testament laws that accurately reflect what Moses said about taking an oath. And what this tells us, if you knew nothing else at this point, what this tells us is that contrary to what most people think, or what certain people think, I should say, not most, far from prohibiting the taking of an oath, the Old Testament actually encouraged it. It actually encouraged it. For example, in Deuteronomy 10.20, you don't need to turn there, just, uh, just jot this down. Deuteronomy 10.20, it says this, You shall fear the Lord your God, and you shall serve him and cling to him, and you shall swear by his name. Now notice that God, in that statement through Moses, is actually encouraging us to swear by his name. So it can't be wrong. George Fox didn't have it right. We admire his, um, his courage, we admire his uh, lack of compromise for his convictions, but the Bible makes it very clear, as God says, swear by my name. Deuteronomy 6.13, you shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. Those are encouragements in Scripture. So the Old Testament did encourage the Jewish people to swear by God's name. But what it did forbid... And note this, what it did forbid was false swearing. False swearing would be taking an oath using God's name, but not keeping your word. That's what it forbid. And it forbid in a number of places. For example, Leviticus 19.12, you shall not swear falsely by my name so as to profane the name of of your uh, God. I am the Lord. Numbers 30, verse 2, if a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to bind himself with a binding obligation, he shall not violate his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. In Deuteronomy 23, 21, when you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for it would be sin in you, and the Lord your God will surely require it of you. Now, what I want you to see from these three verses, and there are others in the Old Testament too, but these three verses What I want you to see is the basic theme. What they're all saying is this. They're they're all making a certain emphasis, and they're emphasizing truthfulness. Truthfulness. They're saying, when you swear by God's name, keep your oath, be true to your word, and really mean what you say, because if you don't keep your word, then you will be guilty of profaning God's name. Now watch this. Watch this. Since all men have trouble, and all of us do, consistently telling the truth. The ancient rabbis recognized that they had a problem. And their problem was this. They were afraid that they might make an oath, use God's name, but then lie. And they would profane his name by by swearing an oath in his name, then not keeping their word. And they recognized that would be very serious. They would be breaking Not only these laws, but the third commandment of the third of the ten, which says you shall not take the Lord, the Lord's name in vain. And so they came up with a way to protect themselves against profaning his name. And the way they did this was instead of just saying, you know what, we need to be honest. No, that that wasn't what they did. They decided to protect themselves by reinterpreting the law about oaths. And they reinterpreted to mean that the only time you were obligated to keep your word was when you used God's name in your oath. 
In other words, they said, you know what, the real and the sole purpose of taking an oath isn't to encourage us to speak the truth, but rather to keep us from profaning God's name. That's what it's really all about. And so this led them to conclude, as John Stott points out, that, and I quote, false swearing meant profanity, a profane use of of the divine name, not perjury, a dishonest pledging of one's word, end of quote. Therefore, here's what they said. The only oath that is binding that you have to really keep is an oath that uses God's name. All other oaths can be broken. No big deal. You don't have to keep your word. The important thing is don't profane God's name. It's really optional whether you want to lie or not. Just don't lie if you say his name. And so as a result of this this very twisted view uh, on oath-taking, the rabbis taught that you really, you were only required to speak the truth if your oath included, or it might imply God's name. It may not say exactly his name, but if it implied his name, yet you had to speak the truth. But otherwise, you could really renege on your word, and it was all right. Everybody understood it. It was all right. So the upshot of all of this was that the rabbis came up with this elaborate, and I emphasize elaborate system, whereby some oaths were binding and some were not. In fact, there's a whole part of the, the Mishnah, which are uh, official Jewish writings, devoted to which oaths were valid oaths and which oaths weren't. That's, that's in ancient Jewish writings. For example, they said, if you swore by the temple, you were not obligated to keep that oath. You could swear by the temple. But if you swore by the gold of the temple, then you were obligated to keep your word. Now, what's the difference? I, I have no idea what the difference is but they did. Or if you swore, they said, by Jerusalem, then you were not bound by that oath. That's all right. You could lie if you swear by Jerusalem. I swear by Jerusalem. This is true. It's all right. You don't have to keep that. But if you swore towards Jerusalem, then it was binding. Now, what's the difference? As I said, I don't have any clue as to what the difference is, but they did. And they said the expression towards Jerusalem implied God's name, but the single word or the single name Jerusalem did not. And the same thing would apply to the gold of the temple in contrast to just the temple. Now, you could see right off the bat how ridiculous this artificial classification of oaths really was. But it did serve their purpose. And their purpose was to come up with the system that allowed them to avoid telling the truth. That was their goal, and they accomplished it. They just invented a very legalistic, quite frankly, superstitious system of oaths that one was obliged to keep. And they created a rather impressive list of oath-taking formulas that can be used when telling the truth was optional. For example, from Jewish writings, we know that expressions such as, I swear by heaven, or I swear by earth, or I swear by the temple, or I swear by the altar of the temple, could be used, and it was no big deal. No big deal. You can say that, and you didn't have to keep your word. The rabbis actually became so consumed with this that it, that, it, that it sort of became like a contest to see who could bind the most impressive objects to their statements. If you've, if you've ever wondered what did rabbis do in their spare time, apparently this was one of the things they, they did. But you know what? Later in the Gospels, in Matthew chapter 23, Jesus very strongly condemned and mocked the foolishness and hypocrisy of the Pharisees for doing this. Let me read it to you. And you might want to turn there. In fact, you should. Matthew chapter 23. It's a bit away from our study in the Sermon on the Mount, but it's the same subject. Matthew 23, 
Beginning at verse 16, now Matthew 23 is really devoted to condemning the Pharisees. And part of it is their silly, nonsensical, oath-taking formulas. And Jesus directly addressed this. In verse 16, he said, Woe to you blind guides who say, Whoever swears by the temple, that's nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men. Which is more important, the gold or the temple that, that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it, he's obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. What he's saying is you can't come up with a system like this and avoid God. He's in everything. But they tried. See, what they were actually doing was in, in the, um, the words of the late Bible teacher, James Montgomery Boyce, they were doing this evasive swearing, evasive swearing, swearing that gave pretense to a commitment to tell the truth, but which in reality was really a license to lie. They were justifying lying and thinking it was all right because they weren't obligated to keep an oath that didn't include God's name or didn't imply his name. Now, having said that, with that as a background, perhaps you can see a little better what Jesus was talking about when he introduced the subject of oath-taking by what he said in verse 33. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. He was saying that the ancient rabbis reduced the law about oath-taking to only one thing, Make sure you fulfill your oaths that use God's name. Otherwise, you'll be guilty of taking the Lord's name in vain. Now, folks, do you you see what the Pharisees were guilty of? What they did with oaths is just what they did with all the other laws. They manipulated and twisted and changed and reinterpreted these laws to, to fit their sinful desires. Rather than conform their behavior to what Scripture said, rather than the Bible being the authority, they became the authority. And, and being the authority, they reinterpreted the Bible to fit their sinful desires so that the laws about oaths were reduced to an artificial set of rules that allowed them to get away with lying and deception, but still appear to be obedient to God because they didn't take his name in vain. Listen, this is always the way legalism operates. I, I, I recall coming from a Jewish background, not so much in my direct family, but relatives, seeing them very concerned about one thing, but completely oblivious to other things and thinking that they're pious because they've got this right. And, and most of it, quite frankly, was superstition, superstition. And that's the way these folks were. So what they did was misuse the Bible in order to justify Lying, deception. They rejected God's standards of absolute truthfulness, which was really the primary purpose of oath-taking, and they manipulated the Bible in order to accommodate their desire to lie. Listen, they wanted to lie, and they came up with a system that allowed them to lie and still look pious. That is legalism. You know what the modern-day equivalent would be? It'd be like this. It'd be like a little kid making a promise, saying something is true. I swear this is the truth, but behind his back, he's got his fingers crossed. Got his fingers crossed. And somehow, by crossing his fingers, he's not obliged to say what he just 
promised to say. That's the same thing here. But instead of crossing their fingers, they just came up with these expressions. But it was okay because the rabbi said it was okay. It's a lie, so you don't have to do it. That's exactly what they were doing. That somehow putting one finger over another meant that it was all right to lie and deceive. So that's how the Pharisees were with, with their man-made oaths. And, and it's this absolute disgusting hypocrisy that justified lying but was zealous to not profane God's name. See, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense at all that Jesus addressed by telling his followers the real truth about, about oaths. You, you see why the Lord was so upset with these people? They were so absolutely superstitious about not profaning God's name. In fact, a religious Jewish person today won't even say the name God. If they write you a letter, it'll say G-D. But they don't mind doing other things that would be disobedience. That's hypocrisy. And Jesus now moves from exposing the error taught by the Pharisees to his correct teaching about oath-taking. This was the standard that God originally established in the Old Testament. And this is what Jesus is saying, that, that I haven't come to change, but I have come to teach my followers, my, the citizens of my kingdom, how to live as obedient citizens of the kingdom. And so he says in verse 34, but I say to you, make no oath at all. In setting his teaching against the teaching of the rabbis, Jesus begins by making a very strong statement that does appear to be a condemnation against all oath-taking. He said, make no oath at all. Now, based on these words, are we then to conclude that uh, George Fox and, and the Quakers had it right? And other groups that refuse to take oaths on religious grounds that they're right. Is it wrong for a Christian to take an oath in a court of law? Is it wrong for the president of the United States to be sworn into office, or for that matter, any public figure to be sworn into office? Is it a violation of scripture to stand before a pastor or a justice of the peace and, and um, take a vow during a marriage ceremony? Is Jesus saying, as one Bible teacher put it, that nowhere in the entire realm of human relations is there any room for the solemn invocation of the name of God in substantiation of an important affirmation or promise? He's saying, is, is, did Jesus condemn did Jesus condemn all oath-taking? And the answer is no, that's not what he was saying at all. Jesus was not teaching that all oaths are forbidden. And I want to tell you why he was not teaching that. There are several valid biblical reasons why we know that his statement here does not mean that we are forbidden to ever take an oath. And I'll tell you, first of all, the, the one and primary reason we know that he wasn't condemning all oath-taking is because this would contradict what the Old Testament taught. We've already seen the Old Testament uh, encourage people to, to swear by God's name, not to falsely swear, but to swear by God's name. Now, Jesus said he did not come to destroy the law of the prophets. That's what kind of launched him into this part of the Sermon on the Mount. He said, I didn't come to, to, with some new novel, newfangled teaching. What I'm teaching is consistent with the morality of the Old Testament. So it wouldn't make any sense for him to, to now change that since the Old Testament taught and encouraged people to keep an oath, Jesus would not be contradicting that. He didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. So he wasn't changing the very clear Old Testament instruction that urged people to take an oath. Secondly, 
In addition to these specific Old Testament statements telling people to take an oath, the Bible does give a number of examples of godly people who practiced and did take oaths. You have, for example, in Genesis 14, you have Abraham, the man of of faith, who swears to God that he will not take anything from the king of Sodom. This is after winning a, a battle. He says, it's yours. I swear to God that I'll not take anything that belongs to you. In Psalm 132, verse 2, we're told that David, King David, swore to God. In the New Testament, the great apostle Paul actually, on a number of of occasions, made a type of oath to God. Do you realize that? And and he did this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. For example, Romans chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says, For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. When he says God is my witness, he's calling upon God in a form of oath to witness the fact that he's telling the truth. He said the same thing in, interestingly enough, not only Romans 1.9, but Romans 9.1, where he said, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit is my witness. I call upon the Holy Spirit in my spirit to testify that I'm telling the truth. That, that's, that's a form of an oath. He did the same thing in 2 Corinthians one twenty three, where he said, but I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you, I did not come again to Corinth. He said, I, I want you to know as God is my witness, why I didn't come to Corinth. So all of this simply means that uh, you can't deny You can't say Jesus is teaching no oaths at all when you have godly men, especially Paul, writing under the inspiration by the Holy Spirit, who's taking an oath. But a third reason why we know that Jesus was not forbidding all oaths, and you may find this fascinating and may not know this, is that Jesus himself allowed himself to be put under an oath. Did you know that? That Jesus actually allowed himself to be put under an oath. You see this in Matthew 26. I'd like you to look at that. Matthew 26 Starting at verse 62, it's the time where he had been arrested and was before Caiaphas, the high priest, and the Jewish leaders, and he would not speak. He was silent. But see what happens. Verse 62, the high priest stood up and said to him, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silence. Now, up to this point, the Lord was not speaking, but watch this. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you. I adjure you or I charge you under oath is the thought. I charge you under oath by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, if Jesus was against all oath-taking, he would still be quiet. But in response to this charge by the high priest to put himself under oath, Jesus responded. He said in verse 64, Jesus said to him, and this is all under oath now because that's what the response is. You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you that hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. The point is this. When Caiaphas spoke, he put Jesus, if, he, if Jesus responded, he was putting him under an oath. And Jesus did respond. He put himself under oath. In fact, Jesus often used a, a form of oath taking every time he introduced the statement with the words truly or truly, truly, or you may have it in your Bibles, verily or verily, verily. What that is, it's a form of oath taking. Now, we know that everything that Jesus said was truth. 
But the words truly, truly were his way of emphasizing that what he was about to say was of extreme importance. In other words, they added seriousness and a guarantee of reliability. That's a form of oath. So if Jesus wasn't, by his statement in Matthew 5, condemning all oath-taking, then what exactly did he mean when he said, make no oath at all? Context. Always context. We always need to read our Bible, and really any book, with the context in mind. There is the local context of nearby verses and the global context of the whole Bible. And then there's the context of the culture of the original audience to consider. So now you know what we'll be covering when we meet again for Verse by Verse. Thanks for tuning in. Our teacher is Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. To find out more about Lakeside, go online to lakesidechapel.com. If you missed part of today's broadcast or anything in this series from Matthew 5, you can catch up on the Message Archive page at our website, versebyverseradio.org. There's also a giving page if the Lord is moving you to help support Verse by Verse Ministries. That's versebyverseradio.org. This is Jerry Peterson. Jesus said that he is the way, the truth, and the life. He also said that we would know the truth, and the truth would make us free. So why are we always looking for ways around the truth? Winston Churchill is quoted as saying, Men occasionally stumble over the truth, but most of them pick themselves up and hurry off as if nothing happened. (laughs) On our next Verse by Verse, Pastor Steve will be wrapping up this message from his series on the Sermon on the Mount as we examine Jesus' opinion of the pharisaical practice of having one oath for the truth and another oath for a lie and how that applies to us as citizens of God's kingdom. We are here to give you strength between...